Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. I'm James Conlon, Richard Seaver Music Director of Los Angeles Opera. You are about to hear an authentic homemade product. My home, that is. Naturally, as many of you are, that is where I am holed up. You will hear the rustling of papers and notes on my desk, along with other ambient imperfections. All of that said, I do hope you will really enjoy the podcast. Let's get going. Love and death, a fatal love, in these phrases is summed up, if not the whole of poetry, whatever is universally moving in European literature as regards the oldest legends and the sweetest songs. Happy love has no history. Romance only comes into existence where love is fatal, frowned upon and doomed by life itself. What stirs lyrical poets to their finest flights is neither the delight of the senses nor the fruitful contentment of the settled couple. Not the satisfaction of love, but its passion. And passion means suffering. Something undergone, the mastery of fate over a free and responsible person. To love love more than the object of love. To love passion for its own sake has been to love to suffer and to court suffering all the way from Augustine's Amabam Amare down to modern Romanticism. Passionate love, the longing for what sears us and annihilates us in its triumph. Those words were written by Denis de Rougemont, a French author, in 1940, in which he discusses the basis of European literature, but also the subjects of the madrigalists and the mystics all together. And that's what most opera is all about, passion and the complications of passion and the complications of human beings. As he points out, nobody writes about a happily married couple. It's all about the obstacles. It's all about the difficulties. It's all about the yearning, the disappointments, the ecstasy. Peleas and Melisande belongs to that tradition, but in a very strange way. Now, we're going to only look at a very small aspect of Peleas in this particular talk, which is its odd relationship with the works of Richard Wagner and the towering figure of Richard Wagner. Debussy, as almost all young artists in the latter part of the 19th century, were fascinated with him. At first, for Debussy, it was infatuation, then it was resentment, and then it ended up with hatred and rejection. Now, this is very common. This is, of course, what does the, you know, the adolescent man or woman do as they grow? They have to have their parents to rebel against in order to define themselves. And so that is what Debussy was doing. But there would have been no Debussy as we know him without Wagner because he would not have had Wagner to reject. Tristan and Isolde is the basic myth. 
And at the end of the 19th century, almost everybody wanted to write their version of that tragic love story, that love that must end and be consummated with death. And so most of the German composers deal with that. Now, Debussy also, in his strange way, has done the same thing with Peleus and Melisande, which is very similar in its plot, and yet, as we're going to see and discuss, very different in the content and what the opera is about. The plot is the same in many respects. There is an older man who takes a younger wife. That younger wife falls in love with a younger man, and he with her. So in Tristan and Isolde, we have a king, King Marke, who marries Isolde, and his trusted nephew falls in love with her and she with him, and so they betray him. And that's where the basis of the story is. Now, in Debussy's Peleus and Melisande, written by Maurice Maeterlinck, the play, we have a man whose name is Golot. He finds a young woman in the forest. She calls herself Melisande. He marries her without knowing much about her. And when he brings her home, she meets, amongst others, his half-brother, Peleus, a younger man. Now, Peleus and Melisande are going to fall in love, as the title suggests. And Golot is going to react with jealousy and eventually become violent. And so we have the basic setup again. We have, as we do in most Italian operas, a tenor and a soprano who are in love with each other, and a baritone or a bass who are going to be the obstacle to that love. That was a famous quip of George Bernard Shaw. He said it about Italian opera, but it is applicable also to many other operas. So both of these operas have a wronged husband. In Tristan and Isolde, the wronged husband, King Marca, is noble, and he forgives them in his way. And yet, vengeance is played out by one of the members of his court, Melot, who avenges himself and stabs Tristan, and eventually Tristan will die of that. Now, at the same time, Mark is philosophical, he's wise, he's older, he's a commentator. We have a character similar to Marca in Peleus and Merizonde. We have two. Golo is the husband. He's the wronged husband. He will avenge himself. And we have his grandfather, Arkel, who is the oldest person in the opera. An old bass somehow sometimes makes us think of the character of Gournemans in Parsifal. He also philosophizes, comments, predicts the future, uh, although as Pierre Boulez said, very often he's completely wrong about everything, but he has a sort of innocence about him. Now, Peleas has an innocence about him, and he loves Melisande in his way, in an innocent way. And their tragedy, of course, is that they will discover an erotic relationship, and Golon eventually will, through his anger and his jealousy, will murder Peleas, and indirectly will cause also the death of Melisande. Now, the plot is basically the same. We have the husband, we have the younger lover, we have the wife, and we have tragedy. We have love and death, just as Denis de Rougemont has told us. Now, what are the similar similarities of the plot? 
Well, we've heard them, but there are basic differences in the music and the philosophic standpoint almost from Wagner and Debussy. And what are they? Well, Tristan is all about self-expression, actually Wagner's self-expression and his own autobiography, his love with Mathilde Wesendonck. Debussy, there's no self-expression. This is not about him. This is not an autobiography. He takes this story with a certain amount of distance and he recounts it. Passion, which expresses itself in fulfillment in love and love death. In fact, the Liebestod, the famous excerpt of the end of the opera of Tristan and Isolde, which has a rich concert life in and of itself, is called Liebestod, that is, love death. Now, Debussy is not so much about passion. He's more about isolation and lack of connection between the characters, not just the love characters, but everybody. Everybody seems to be in their own space without an ability to touch the other. And we, we don't really understand them very well. They don't really understand themselves very well. And they don't understand the other characters in the drama. There's a sadness about all of that. Now, Wagner, who loves to retell the story, has Isolde recount the entire background of how she got where she is, and Tristan is going to recount. They're both going to tell all about them. So we're going to know about them. We're going to know about King Marco. We're going to know because Wagner tells us. Debussy tells us nothing, and Melisande in particular never tells us anything about herself. We know no more about her at the end of the opera than we did when we first see her at the beginning of the opera because she never reveals anything. She never answers a question in a straightforward fashion. She'll answer a question with a question. She'll skirt the issue. She'll change the subject. We do not know why was she sitting at that fountain in the first act? We do not know where she came from. We suspect that she was married because we know that she's dropped a crown or a ring into the water, but we don't know who that was, if it was. We will never find out. And Golo will be driven to madness by the end of the opera because he cannot find out anything about her. Now, Wagner expresses all of this with the entire artillery of the orchestra, the symphonic orchestra, large, expansive, dominating. It's a universe in itself. Debussy is going to concentrate far more on the French text, the French prosody, and the extension of that text. He's going to use the orchestra in an extraordinary way, uh, but in a very different way from Wagner. He's not going to overwhelm us with the orchestra. He's going to handle it in a very sensitive and expressive manner. What is the harmony like of Tristan? Tristan is all about chromatic harmony, chromatic overflow. Now, the harmonic language of Debussy is very different, basing itself largely on the whole tone scale, pentatonic scales, modal scales. Let's take a look and listen to them for a moment. So let's first hear what a whole tone scale sounds like. First you'll hear a scale, then you'll hear a chord, and then you'll hear a harmonic progression. That's the whole tone scale. Chords. And a full passage. 
Now let's hear a pentatonic scale. That means five, five notes in this scale. You can reproduce it by playing the five black keys on the piano. This is associated with Asian and Eastern music. So now let's consider the third aspect of Debussy's harmonic language. And we've heard whole tone scales, we've heard the pentatonic scale. Now the modal score, this goes back to the modes, going all the way back to the Greeks. The scale is different slightly. There's a scale. Now harmonized. And that's the beginning of the opera, which is modal. Before we start, let's just review and remember that the leitmotifs, those are motifs, the idea drawn from Wagner that a motive can be a person, a place, an emotion, an object. Debussy uses them in a much more limited fashion, but he has several that are very important, and one of the most important is Melisande. Here it is on the piano. Here it is harmonized. This is whole tone harmony. Here's a second example, Melisande. Now, let's listen together. I'm going to play the beginning of the opera again. You heard it last time, but we'll hear it now with new ears. I'm going to be able to point out to you now uh, the different uses of this different harmonic language. I'm going to concentrate in this talk not so much on the singing and the text anymore, but on the orchestral interludes. The orchestral interludes first had a technical function they had to, he had to write some music to cover the uh, change of scenery. Now, in fact, when he first wrote it, um, there were very few and very short. He had no experience writing for the theater and didn't understand that the scenery took time to change. So the directorate of the Opera Comique told him he had to fill in with music. Well, necessity is the mother of invention. We have been bequeathed some of the most extraordinary music for orchestra in these interludes, which were mostly expanded after the opera went into rehearsal. More on that shortly, but that is what we will concentrate on this talk. Now, here's the beginning of the opera. You will remember, and you can review, remember that we have the synopsis available to you on the website, and it's always a good idea to review that. The story is not complicated, but it is better if you know all the names and who, how they're related and those kind of details. We're in a dark forest in the middle of some dark, sad land in the north of Europe. 
This is the first motive. It's been given various names. Last time I called it a long time ago, once upon a time, an indistinct place. It's in modal harmony. That's modal harmony. And here comes whole tone harmony. This is the motive of Golo. Golo, who will find Melisande and marry her. The original motive comes again now. Modal harmony. And a repetition of Golo. Here's Merizond on the oboe. Whole tone harmony. Suggestion of pentatonic harmony. Melisande's motive again. Here's Golo. And the original motive, once upon a time, the deep forest, a place and time without identity. Now Golo is going to find Melisande in the forest. I think this is the proper time to interrupt momentarily to introduce now the presence of Richard Wagner. Tristan and Isolde by Wagner hangs over the entire end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. His great contributions cannot be measured, but one of the most revolutionary was his use of chromatic harmony. Now, let's find out what does that mean. Chromatic harmony means that all 12 tones of the scale, natural scale, are far more accessible. This is the beginning of Tristan and Isolde. The motive is that of Tristan and the famous chord, which is also known as the Tristan chord, which revolutionized harmony after Wagner wrote it. Now that's a chromatic scale in fast motion. And here's an example of highly chromatic harmony. And this is the famous half diminished chord, the Tristan chord. And it has the advantage is it can resolve in any direction. It has four notes, 
Each one of those forked notes can lead to a different chord. That's the second example. Here's a third. And another. Another influence on Debussy was the great Russian composer Modest Mussorgsky, whose great masterpiece Boris Gutnov was becoming known at the end of the 19th century in France. Debussy admired him greatly, and he too was a great maverick in the context of his culture, and Debussy found much to admire in his writing, and there are many similarities between the approach of Mussorgsky, as I think we discussed in the first part, and to the approach of Debussy and Pelias and Melisande. Here, we just want you to hear this undulating bass that introduces now the first interlude, and that is a typically Mussorgskian type of construction. This is Golo, who is now taking Melisande with him in the forest. You hear the basic motive of the opera? This is modal. Those two notes are based on the Golo motive. These are variations on the Golo motive. Now a combination of Golo and the original theme. This is clearly whole tone harmony. No sign of Wagner yet. Elizon. combination of chromatic and whole tone harmony. This is the Debussy of La Mer. Now we are describing the sea because when we get to the next scene, they have traversed the sea and they've come home to the castle of Arkel, the patriarch of the opera. Now we're starting to hear, this is Wagnerian. You, that rhythm, that's Golo's theme, shortened. And now it becomes like a march. So we hear that march theme, and that, in fact, is uh, very similar to a great march in the third act of Parsifal, which is leading into the final scene of the great scene of the unveiling of the Grail, the arrival of Parsifal, and the redemption at the end of the opera. Now, it leads to a great climax eventually. Let's hear what that sounds like in Wagner. 
till it resolves. Now here it is in Debussy. So you can hear the similarity. In this scene, we will meet the patriarch, Arkel. We will meet Genevieve, who is the mother of both Golo and Peleas, with different fathers. And we will meet Peleas in person. And here, so I think it's the right time to show you his theme, which is very simple. And this is harmonized in a way that is very similar to Parsifal. What do he and Parsifal have in common? They are both, in their different ways, very innocent individuals. Now, their fate is going to be quite different. Parsifal is going to become enlightened spiritually, and he's going to become the new redeeming figure for the Knights of the Grail. Peleas, of course, is going to have a much more humble and tragic fate. This is Parsifal. Genevieve, the mother of Pelleas and Golon, reads a letter from Golon explaining that he's found this mysterious woman in the forest and he's married her and he's bringing her home. Pelleas comes into the scene and tells Arkel, his grandfather, that he wants to go away because he wants to see his friend Marcellus, who is dying. Arkel says, you cannot leave now, you must stay here. There is a sad and tragic overtone to this This interlude, written in some respects with a Wagnerian harmony, but in the aesthetic of Debussy. Here you hear the theme of Golon, surrounded by a very poignant harmony. Now, fragments, Golo, you hear that interrupted figure in the woodwind instruments. Here's a passage from the Prelude to Act Three of Parsifal. You hear its interrupted character. Your Peleas. That similar type of interrupt. And now Melisande's theme will appear. Now let's hear it with the orchestra. You have a combination of that sighing type of theme that came from Wagner 
the same time, Melisande's theme, and then, it dis- then a dissolution of that theme. Now comes something interesting. Act one of Tristan ends with a chorus offstage of sailors. We never see them. This idea was taken over by Debussy, and he introduced the sounds of sailors who are on the boat that have brought Melisande to the shore, and now they're leaving, and we hear them leaving. And so we only hear them, we never see them. Here they are. So you see their background music. Very different from Tristan and Isolde. Now a reminder, here's Pelias and Melisande, chorus in the background. By the way, this effect was taken over by Puccini in the final act of Madame Butterfly. The Butterfly was written several after, years after Peleas premiere in Paris. There's no question, consciously or unconsciously, it's made an impression on Puccini. Debussy started writing Peleas and Melisande in 1893. He had completed most of it by the end of 1895, but it did not premiere until 1902. So that means almost a decade this work was in the oven. Toward the end of that time, between 1898 and 1900, he wrote the three nocturnes, which are entitled Nuage, which are clouds, fete, which are celebrations, and the third one, Sirene, the famous sirens of Greek mythology who, with their seductive singing, were able to lead sailors astray. Here it is, and you'll see the great resemblance between that and the what we just heard in the chorus of the third scene of Peleas, and you'll also notice, strangely enough, Golo's theme in this. Pelias also introduces us to the idea of the sea. The sea is very important in Pelias, as it was in Tristan and Isolde. And this is all leading toward Debussy's great masterwork for orchestra, La Mer, the sea, which was to come several years later after Pelias was completed. 
but we have to stop there. Join me next time when we continue exploring the music of Debussy, Wagner, and Peleas and Melisande. I'm James Conlon for LA Opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.